Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 26, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay. Uh, we saw something last night we should not have seen. We had an experience last night we should not have had. Um, we watched the uh, debate, uh, Pennsylvania Senate debate between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz. And it was a horrifying event. I don't know how else to put it. And uh, okay, um, Abe, take it from here. Um, it was horrifying from the word go. In in way, I mean, to be frank, Literally, I, expect, the I first expected, thing, yeah. yeah, I expected it to be horrifying. But the first thing he came out. Uh, first thing Fetterman came out and said is uh, good night, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Yeah. I mean, literally the first sentence out of his mouth was good night, everybody. I think it was everybody. I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't even matter. I mean, and as, as, as it was going, you just, uh, from that second onward, you were like, oh my God, we have 59 and a half minutes to go here. And um, um, he's, he's impaired he's the impairment the causes of the impairment are not the issue debates are performances and um if you go and you see somebody uh go see a singer and uh they're singing out of key you know if you were watching the young taylor swift who sometimes had a tr trouble being on pitch performing at um the grammys or something at a, one performance she was just off by like I don't know, a fifth or like just, you know, uh, something like that. And she could not get back on key. And it's, it's horrifying. You know, it's, it's, you can't, you can't handle it. It's very hard to see, or, you know, when an actor goes up on stage and forgets their lines or whatever debates or performances. And this was a performance and it was a performance of somebody who, uh, if you saw, you know, a clearly impaired person. Sometimes you see this like at the Oscars, right? Like the very old Kirk Douglas uh, announced that Chicago had won the Oscar. This is in 2003, the movie Chicago, which his daughter-in-law was in, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones. But he could barely speak. And yeah, it was very impressive. He was like 98 or whatever he was, and, and he could, but he couldn't speak. We it's like a thing where you're not supposed to see it, not because there's any shame in it, but because it's an icky voyeuristic spectacle well <laughs> that you should not be privy to. And you know, you shouldn't be privy to, and you're, you're forced to watch it. The normal human beings reaction would be to shield their eyes, walk away, intervene even. Um, but you're not allowed to do that because you are forced to witness this as a matter of civic hygiene. Uh, the other reaction that normal people have when they're not primed by partisan instincts to defend this spectacle um, is to be enraged. Uh, one of the lines that's being peddled by people like Rebecca Tristar and Greg Sargent and everybody who's politically invested in this guy's uh, success, whether or not 
it uh, it's valuable to him and his family. Um, is that voters are voters that have experience with post-stroke recovery. They know what it looks like. They know what progress looks like. They're going to be rooting for this guy. It might even be an asset down the line. I have experience with post-stroke recovery. I know what a mishandled recovery process looks like. This is it. This is abuse. Well, and it's, and it's disgusting. Not, it's not a spelling bee, it. right? It's not a middle school spelling bee where you should be like, yay, he gets a participation trophy for getting through it. I mean, that that it's it's also it's you're absolutely right that it's disgusting because it's it's condescending to someone who's who's struggling with his health. But I I also want to point out that it did there was an interesting shift in the dynamic, you know, leading up to this. And and we should also note that he deliberately his campaign deliberately delayed the debate as long as possible. So that a lot of people have probably already cast their votes for him without having seen just how compromised his health is. Um, and that's that's unethical. If you, I mean, not the campaigns need to be ethical, but that that was a choice, a deliberate political choice that will have consequences down the line. But the idea that criticizing him for his inability to just speak clearly to his constituents is ableism. This is something that we've seen floating around. Oh, it's ableist to even to even point out his deficiencies. Ableism is when you assume that someone with some sort of disability has all kinds of other traits that 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 are negative and and you judge them based on those traits. That's ableism. And it's a terrible thing and we no one should be ableist. But to but to point to someone as John said whose requirement is to perform in public so that his constituents know what his ideas and his views are, that's not ableist. That's literally saying is this guy capable of doing the job? Someone with a broken leg does not perform in Cirque du Soleil. That's simply not something they can do. That doesn't it's not ableist to point that out. And his disabilities right now, which he might and hopefully will recover from, many stroke victims do, um, we hope that that's his recovery. But but to your point, Noah, this is not helping his recovery. This is propping up someone who's clearly not able to do his job and, and arguing in the face of clear evidence, which we saw last night, that he is capable. Oh, it's actively yeah. uh, hindering his recovery process, which is why it's so enraging for anybody who does have experience with what this looks like and the process that it goes through, the years-long process that it takes to actually fully recover from something like this. Um, to your, to the, this whole like ableism debate that you're talking about, Political playbook, to its credit, um, says, you know, that this is a, a really like a Twitter based argument is a quote. The median voter in Pennsylvania is a middle aged white person with a mid five figure salary who doesn't attend college, had not attended college. That demographic is perhaps the least likely to be following the Fetterman ableism debate on Twitter and MSNBC. Um, and that's true. But it also kind of sidesteps the whole point of these brushback pitches, these campaigns that are they serve no purpose other than to sanitize the social media landscape of arguments that the political the political left finds discomforting right. and just First wants all, to go away they had an opportunity here to say this is not a big deal instead they spent weeks even months saying this isn't happening don't believe your eyes don't believe your ears don't believe reporters they could have spent a lot of time saying this is the progress. This is the recovery we've seen. The trajectory is getting better. It's not something you have to really worry about. They wasted all that opportunity and instead morally and emotionally blackmailed Americans into not talking about what they're seeing. And now people like me who are enraged by what they're seeing are not going to be quiet about it anymore. Um, it's not the other horror about calling about uh, accusing uh, people who respond uh, with with shock and dismay to seeing uh, Fetterman in his condition. This is not ableism. Ableism is judging people who have disabilities uh, uh, and saying that you know they they can't they can't perform like others. He's sick. He had a stroke. He is recovering from a brain shock. 
His brain attacked him. He's not disabled. He is impaired as a result of a medical event in his, inside his body from which we all hope that he recovers fully. But he hasn't recovered and the trajectory of that recovery is unclear, and he is not making it available to anyone. As he said last night, he will not make it available to anybody what the actual medical results of his treatment are or what how severe the stroke was. And clearly, as is often the case with these things, it's a very peculiar set of cognitive circumstances that he is laboring under um he he is having trouble summoning up the right words and saying the right things he is not it appears intellectually damaged uh but he sounds like a five-year-old well, and this see, is with see, the closed captioning that he had. Remember, they yeah. demanded this is with the the, the technological which again, assistance. Even well, which, and they're, they're attacking yeah. the closed captioning company. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. But, which, yeah. They, they're defending themselves, obviously. But uh, I'm thinking about Noah's sense of of anger, which I share and discussed. And and, and I'm, I think what what what's going on here is that it is not we're not seeing ableism, of course. It's exploitation. You see, there is a sense of we can use this. You see, he's being exploited. He's being used as a, quote, disabled person, um, uh, which is not exactly the case here. Um, and that's disgusting. Yeah. He's an instrument of political utility, right. not a human being. And co conflict averse people are not going to pick this fight. They want to avoid it. They don't want to offend. They don't want to say what they're thinking, because what they're thinking offends the socially desirable response. The socially desirable response is pretty obvious. So most people who don't share that response are going to keep it to themselves. That doesn't mean they're not going to vote that way. It doesn't mean their concerns are not going to be paramount when they get into the into the ballot box. You're just papering them over and throwing brushback pitches at them so they don't say what they're actually thinking. But Pennsylvanians, that, that middle-aged, mid-income, 50-year-old white Pennsylvanian in, uh, you know, Punxsutawney, he's, he's, going to talk about this debate the way that we're talking about this debate he's not he's not reading the you know the washington post opinion page to get his talking points here but you know that that's a very important point and i but even more important is the disease that it shows has brought that 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 raw partisanship brings out right so what you have is liberals progressives people like that who are uh, terrified and panicked at the prospect of a republican control of the Senate or, you know, Republican control of the House and the Senate. And they are being pushed by these circumstances to making arguments that nobody should make. Uh, arguments that are, are, are cynical and nightmarishly cynical. And, and I'm sure that it is the case that we're the shoe on the other foot and it were Oz who were impaired and Fetterman wasn't the one who was impaired that there will be plenty of Republicans doing the same. But I just want to give you an example. David Sirota. So who is David Sirota? David Sirota was a Bernie Sanders staffer. Um, he co-wrote the horrible movie uh, Don't Look Up with uh, with Adam McKay. Um, uh, and he, he, he tweeted this last night. 
Here's a truth few will say aloud, but I will. Being a senator is America's easiest job. You just have to sit there and say yay or nay. This notion that John Fetterman can't do that job because he's recovering from a health event is moronic, and everyone in media knows it. And by the way, have you seen or heard the people currently serving in the Senate? Fetterman is more coherent and lucid than 80% of the zombies in that place. Your vote for a Senate candidate is a vote for what the person is going to vote yay or nay on. It's not about personalities or any of that other bullshit. It's about what yays and nays you support. Vote however you want, but don't pretend it's complicated. It's not. Really? <laughs> this well, they is want a, very, a zombie. But, they they uh, assume I, he'll vote. However, even if they elect someone who's cognitively challenged right now, they assume that his wife or whomever will just listen to what the party tells him to do and vote. Like that's where the bar is now. I mean, that's terrible. Yes, it's terrible. Um, I think there's a, a side effect to this. I don't know if you want to bring this up yet. Um, but it, this occurred to me sort of late in the in the debate. What we saw last night chips away at the denial around Joe Biden's condition as well. Exactly. Um, because what we saw was this evidence, clearest evidence that interested parties will tell you you do not see what you see. You are what we, what what you what your own eyes and ears are telling you are wrong. Don't and don't don't tell us you're seeing uh, that that Biden has lost a step and that that. Not not nearly every day, but pretty much every day, Joe, Joe Biden does something that's kind of baffling. Um, I think I think that that whole system uh, around him uh, that 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 sort of deflects questions about about the president's condition is 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 going to take a hit as a result. Of and and the people who are willing to say that this is abuse, this is the misuse of somebody who needs care and attention, and not he needs to be out of a spotlight. Those are the people with the moral high ground. Those are the people who have the compassionate argument in this case. I mean, who knows? Like, you know, we 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 have become the cult in the in this country. On the one hand, it's we're a nation of victims. And on the other hand, people are put in this bizarre moral position when they are sick or they have diseases of being of being ordered to be fighters if you have cancer. You're supposed to be a fighter. You're a fighter. That's it's not going to get you because you're you're a fighter. And similarly, with a lot of these conditions, there's a there's a weird kind of Puritan idea that simply by force of will uh, and and engagement, you you can you can overcome any obstacle, and you can you know and you be a fighter. And so you can see how. A family who faces a tragedy like this says this will be the best thing for him. The best thing for him is the challenge of continuing to go. And then he could also be an example to other people. And he's a fighter. And that that's what I would say is the is the counter argument to what we're saying that, you know, it's terrible that his family let him do this. Like, we don't know. What's okay, going but can, on in, can yeah, we say, can we pause for a minute on that? Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it like, if you're writing a political novel of Washington right now, it would be about these wives. It'd be about Jill, excuse me, Dr. Jill Biden. It would be about Gabriella Fetterman. I mean, these, these women are supposed to be the partners that, uh, that, that protect their political husbands, right? Like that is the typical role of the political wife, right? You show up for the photo ops, you smile, you have the beautiful children, you, you know, you create this image, but they're also supposed to be kind of a protective barrier against what the political manipulations of say a party or, or constituents might, might get to them. And these are the people who, 
at least from what we can see, are actively pushing uh, compromised or potentially compromised individuals more into the spotlight. I mean, there's something really strange about that kind of ambition because the family should be protecting uh, folks in recovery. And you, you've you've seen that in other things, but there there is a long history of women being, wives being appointed to their their dead husband's positions in the Senate and the House. And so I just, it, it, it sounds yeah. macabre. I don't think he's going to die. But the, but the idea that these wives are kind of politically manipulating their husbands, maybe it is just fiction, but it, it strikes me as odd. It's a very strange turn to, especially Fetterman's wife, who seems to have ambition, political ambitions of her own. Well, the most awful, I was was just going to say the most awful example, and this is kind of the parallel to this moment is, was um, in um, Missouri, 10, 12 years, I can't remember when it was, no, no, it was 20 years ago, um, I guess, or longer longer than that, when uh, Mel Carnahan, uh, the senator, died um, right before election day. And he won, or it was close, and he wins the election. John Ashcroft, I think, was the Senate candidate against him. That's why it was longer ago than, than I think. I, if I maybe I, maybe my my brain is frazzled here, but, um, and he won, and the and and the governor then appointed his wife Jean Carnahan, who I think served two terms after that, um, something like that. So. We actually have an example of this with it, with people actually voting for debt because it was too late. It was too late for anyone to 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 hit the ballot. Fetterman had this stroke in June. He had the stroke right before the primary. A rational political party and a rational family would have immediately withdrawn from the race on the grounds that he had a massive stroke. They did not, right? The uh uh, the Fetterman family throughout the summer, uh, they had a moral. Op- I will say this: they had a political obligation to their party for him to withdraw. This was coming. This debate was coming. This event where there was going to have to be this public exposure of his of his impairment was coming. He could have withdrawn at any point. I think up to about a month ago. And the party itself could have appointed his uh, the the guy who came in second in the primary. That's Representative Connor Lamb. Uh, progressives in 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 the state were not crazy about Connor Lamb because he's more of a moderate. He was serving in a in a relatively conservative district. But I think there's no question that Connor Lamb appointed to Fetterman's, uh, you know, appointed in Fetterman's stead, uh, running with a very comparable candidate in the governor's race josh sure. shapiro would have walked in to the probably would have walked in to the senate seat um and fetterman insisted fetterman whoever fetterman is insisted on not withdrawing and the and the party because of the bizarreness of the circumstances did not come out and say did not have a meeting and say i'm sorry uh, I'm sorry, you know, Lieutenant Governor, um, we 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 insist that you withdraw. John, this is so big because can we talk about the party for a second? Yeah. What does this say about the idea of Democrats are the party that cares, right? That 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 cares about uh, people suffering, uh, people who are outcast, people <clears throat> who have uh, been alienated and that the Republicans are uh, uncaring, sleazy, cutthroat competition at all costs. Bottom line. Uh, I, 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 we should actually talk briefly about Giselle and her ambitions because it's an open secret. 
Fetterman's wanted his wife to replace him before. Um, Biden mentioned it. Biden like it kind of slipped right out. Passing. This is an open secret. And, and uh, Shapiro, who's likely to win this uh, race um, as governor, should be asked directly about it before. And we still have time. There's most likely we're going to get a, about a week and a half of a little news cycle around. Well, he'll be replaced. Right now we're at the Senate is doesn't matter phase of this rationalization. We'll get to, oh, he's not actually going to be your senator soon enough. But I want to read you some reactions. Talk about partisan. Some reactions from the Philadelphia Inquirer editorial board. There's probably eight of these guys, and not all of them were positive, but a lot of them were very positive for, for Mr. Fetterman's performance. Debbie Lockwood, he had zingers talking about Fetterman, saying that Oz never met an oil company that he doesn't swipe right on. Hearing Fetterman say that Roe v. Wade should be law led me to audibly sigh in relief. Seven out of 10. Uh, Jeff Barg, mostly direct, thoughtful answers, delivered very clunkily. He stumbled badly on fracking, but delivered solid hits on the minimum wage, abortion, health care, and immigration. Um, here's another one. I wish that he had time to expound. Uh, he said, I believe in fighting for health care, the kind of health care that saved my life. I wish he had time to expound on that because it was a moment of human connection. While Fetterman was clear on his support for Roe v. Wade and raising minimum wage, many other of his answers were muddled and sometimes only unintelligible. Five out of ten. Uh, he struggled more than many are comfortable with, I'm sure, but that says more about us than him. He was clear on immigration and women's rights and on issues that should matter to us most. Um, and uh, this is a good one. The directness of Fetterman's support for a living wage, union, college debt relief, compassionate immigration policies, and ensuring reproductive rights showed us that this was a debate between a candidate with a heart issue and an opponent who barely has one. Um, this is abuse. This is abuse of your readers. This is an abdication of your responsibility as a columnist, to be honest and frank with your readership. And it is as an abuse of a person who needs to be out of the spotlight, who needs to be focusing on his recovery and has to be propped up on the stage to advance your political interests. He is your tool. He is not a person to you. And it's sickening to watch these people debase themselves for something as petty as a Senate seat. I just want to remind you again, he had months his family, he, and his party had months to ec to extract him from the race and put another candidate in. That party represents millions of Pennsylvanians who want a who want a Democrat in that seat, who are now being forced to cast a ballot if they're going to cast a ballot for a Democrat for somebody a vote for which they can maybe talk themselves in to being proud or being comfortable because of all this spin that is being done, that there's something noble about the fact that he is laboring in this fashion and teaching us all some lesson. Um, but uh, they should not have to be put in that position. It's not like Oz was great, by the way. Like he I'm not, has, he I, I don't even want to talk about Oz. Very fake. Yeah, I mean, if, if you had a half-capable candidate on that stage, I, I don't think it would have been Oz's night. No, he's very media trained. It but he's... wasn't Oz's. It wasn't Oz's night. It's Oz right, is an Oz is an incidental figure in what happened last night, and you can tell this by this effort, desperate effort to gin up the news story about how he said that you know that uh, the issue of abortion should be left to a woman, her doctor, and local officials. Meaning, oh, that'll be as remembered as as Walker pulling out the badge, which I thought was actually right. going to be a big moment. 
Well, no look, one remembers. Uh, but I'll, I'll say this about um, it's not about Oz, but about the the truth is no one should be put in the position that Oz was put in. You you shouldn't. No one should be put on stage uh, before an audience and a televised audience with the, with the with the expectation of quote debating someone who's in that condition. It's, well, Abe, you thought he might come off like a bully. Did you think that that was there was some who would who would think that? I mean, uh, I didn't. It was very easy for him to, to have come off like a bully. But then again, if he didn't um, sort of pretend that his opponent was capable of a competent uh, debate, right. it, he would have been infantilizing him and talking down to him. And, and it's and, political malpractice for his for Oz's campaign not to have insisted on the debate. I mean, it really was a catch 22 for him. Right. He needed the debate to show that the Fetterman's actual state, since they'd been avoiding dealing with that. On the other hand, it it looks bad. I agree. But Oz is a ter- Oz has always been a terrible candidate to John's point. He's I mean, now, I, now he's looking good. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I, I don't I don't even have much to say about what Oz said. The only thing I, I will say about what Oz said is that he was desperately trying to come off as moderate as possible. Um, and uh, and it was a very conscious shift to the center, which is a, a little risky in this sense, which is that the only the only absolutely certain Republican votes uh, in on on November 8th in Pennsylvania uh, are whatever base of people are going to come out, no matter what, to vote for Doug Mastriano, the, the gubernatorial candidate who is a lunatic and a disgraceful and disastrous candidate and a stop the steal guy who wants to become governor so he can control the 2024 elections and all that and is 10 or 11 points behind Josh Shapiro the the uh, Democratic gubernatorial candidate but at least you know that the people who go out and vote for Mastriano they're there to drag themselves over broken glass to vote for Mastriano and Oz did what he needed to do which is to say to undecideds in the middle of whom there are apparently plenty um, that he isn't Mastriano. I mean, the whole thing was, I'm not Mastriano. I am not a Trumper. I am, you know, except, yeah, except ex- I agree with you, except he did something interesting on the question of Trump himself. Um, when asked if he would support Trump's nomination for, for president, first, he said, I'll support anyone the Republicans nominate. And then they said, well, well let me ask you again, would you support it? He goes, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah, I would support Donald, Donald Trump for presidency. It's an interesting move <clears throat> because everyone gets asked it. Every Republican gets asked it. And if you just say that, um, yeah, you incur certain risks, but you also then don't have to hem and haw. You don't have to you don't have to sort of dance around it and, you know, say you did great things, but he's but he's terrible. He did terrible things, but he's great. And, you know, he he just he just was kind of straightforward about yeah, it. Well, and Democrats aren't asked that about Joe Biden. I just want to point out, like if, if, if it Fetterman clearly was asked, asked it about Fetterman Joe was Biden. Asked that Fetterman was, was asked that. that. that yeah, and they were bad moments for them. They are being asked that. But they're both of these candidates last night are running as robots. They're saying, <laughs> I, I have no preferences, no policies. I'm barely functional. I will be a button for my party to push. Yeah, I am. I am David. What David Sirota says, I am. I am a robot who says yay or nay, and that's all I do. And so my staff will tell me whether to say yay or nay, and then I get to push the button or raise my hand or whatever it is that people are going to be doing. Which is why they're doubling down on abortion. The post debate, the the big win for Fetterman, if he has one, is to say, look at what Oz said about abortion. We're gonna. It's all about abortion. And the Democratic Party and and the officials who are advising Fetterman are now actually. 
criticizing the Oz campaign for running ads. They're saying, how dare they run ads against someone with a medical disability? <laughs> it's insane. Well, it's- I mean, what what's what what you know is that politics is now the politics of, you know, of 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 shysters and con men. So basically you just take whatever is to hand at any given moment. You know, you say he gets to run, he gets to be hailed as a hero for running if you, you know, try or trying to spin people that way. And you can't say anything about the fact that he's running or you're not even allowed to run ads against him because what are you doing to this poor crippled guy? How dare you treat this guy this way? So you just say whatever it is you have to say, because that may appeal to 4% of people. And saying that he's a hero will appear to appeal to another four percent of people. And if you can move them over, and you have a you have a you know you have a base of forty two percent that's going to vote Democratic no matter what, then you get to fifty, and you're done. So you'll just say anything just to get the sliver of population that might respond to a preposterous argument like you should not be allowed to run a conventional campaign for Senate against somebody simply because. But there, he's injured. There is one interesting thing that I'll I'll be curious to see it play out in the next week or so, and that's that you know the a lot of people get their news through uh, video, little video clips here and there, right? They they don't actually watch the the full debate. They don't read the Philadelphia Inquirer's editorial page on the debate. They they just don't follow news in that way. Younger voters in particular are getting all their news from TikTok now, which is another horrifying uh, thing that we should discuss down the line. But with Fetterman, I've already noticed. I I was sort of checking video clips this morning, the way that they're su- all the, the sort of friendly media, democratic friendly media is doing these um, extremely uh, granular supercuts of the, the few coherent moments he had during the debate. And that's what they're blasting out there. CBS News did it this morning. Lots of other places are like, here's really? where, you know, yeah, they're doing these little supercut videos. And that's what a lot of people are going to get. That, was... That's the impression of the debate. A lot of People you gotta you gotta elaborate on this because I was thinking about this last night as I'm going to bed that there was, in my view, no moment that you could cut that made him look coherent. But they did the recount did one where he, you know, he sort of quoted from the Statue of Liberty and CBS News. I remember this cut. moment. Yeah. I have to yeah, see it was this, bad. There, there was no 10 consecutive seconds at which point he said they only coherent. need three because people don't watch that long. They don't need time. I, I, just... <laughs> I yeah, I mean. You're, I mean, I'm just floating that as a, as a possibility like for how a, a lot this. of voters will get their impressions, yeah, not yeah, from yeah, sure. analysis, but from these little clips of video. Right. Well, I mean, and the clips no, are being the, spun as he's yeah. he's coherent. But there, and there, a, there's you know. there's the counter clip. I mean, the actual clip. Yeah. Any 10 second clip on TikTok that isn't something that was, you know, you could just do the him freezing like a deer in the headlights because the captioning was bad or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. And maybe the Atlantic would say that you're uncomfortable with non-normative, you know, expressions of, you know, the Atlantic has already decided that if you, if you you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. This is, this is the horror of that piece. The Atlantic's version, again, sort of like the blue check world of excuse making. So that guy who there's a piece of the, I don't, don't, I don't want to quote it. I want to read from it. But then if you read his bio, uh, he is a staffer at the Atlantic, and he's written a book on what it's like to be a stutterer. So he is somehow now analogizing a person who had a massive event in his brain that has impaired him cognitively with the experience of being somebody with a stutter, which is a which is 
unquestionably an impairment and possibly a disability. Not anymore. Nobody now it's a euphemism. Stutter what? is now a euphemism for being cognitively impaired. That's right. That's what right. It's politically the useful to do this to people who actually suffer yeah. with this. This is disgusting. Stutter, John. Yeah. <laughs> In 2013 or 24, I think it was 2013, Mark Kirk, the first term senator from Illinois, Republican, who won unexpectedly uh, in Illinois in 2010 um, at the age of 50 to very similar to Fetterman, unfortunately had a massive stroke um, uh, and uh, much and worse, worse than Oz. It should, it should be said because he was in a rehab center for five months, uh, had to have surgeries and various other things. And, you know, re, and um, Kirk, very impressive like he busted his ass to get better uh like six or eight months later or something he actually did a walk they would i think they walked up the sears tower uh something like that or the in in chicago and he managed to walk 37 floors um all of that and he ret he returned to the senate a year after his stroke and uh, continued to perform as a senator, not exactly in David Sirota's fashion, because he he was able to speak, although his speech was was very halting and impaired. And he ran for re-election in 20, and he was the Republican nominee for re-election. And the Republicans tried out this message, which was that you know you you can't judge him. He reco he recovered from a stroke. He had rehab. He's a hero. He was really brave. He was really fantastic. And Democrats nominated Tammy Duckworth, right, a double amputee veteran of 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 um, uh, veteran. And um, so it was a race between Mark Kirk, stroke victim, and Tammy Duckworth, who was someone who had lost two legs uh, in a war uh, fighting for her country. And um, Kirk lost. And he lost because there is a significant difference between being somebody who is disabled by not having the use of her legs and somebody who has had a serious brain injury that calls into question whether or not he can represent you in the right way. And we, so we've had a run of this before and it, you know, Granted, he was a Republican in Illinois, you know, uh, Trump was on the ballot, whatever. But uh, he lost by 15 or 16 points. And so I guess this gets us to the next area here of discomfiture, which is, can he win? Uh, not should he win, because he shouldn't, uh, unless you are in this hyper partisan mindset that says it doesn't matter who you just need the robot who will push your button sort of what dana lash said about uh dana lash who was supposedly a you know pro-life activist said about herschel walker like he he could he she basically said he could eat a baby and i would still vote for him <laughs> i mean i can't remember what she said she said something like that killing bald uh, eagles I, I, I recall yeah yeah right he could eat, yeah but basically it was the same thing right i mean she said you know i don't care what he does I'm voting for him. Um, we're now, I mean, I just think watching and it was over and we all saw it live and not all that many people in Pennsylvania will see it live, but um, I, I, I don't know what to say. I Intellectually, don't... I find it hard to believe that if the top of the ticket 
the governor's race, Shapiro, wins by double digits, that there'll be so much ticket splitting that it can drag uh, Oz over the, the finish line. We're in too partisan of an era for me to see that happening intellectually. At the same time, I can't imagine this not landing like a meteor in this race. And maybe worse because of this uh, conventional response that you'll have people saying, don't tell me not to see what I see. I, I just, I think that is very discomforting to say, don't tell me that I didn't, that I, that my discomfiture at these clips I'm watching or whatever well, and these is are an voters, improper response. And these voters remember many news cycles. I remember them as well. I'm sure you guys do too. When, do you remember when Trump took a sip of water with two hands and kind of stumbled down a down a ramp like that was literally a national news cycle for a while both of those instances so people don't forget that this is something that does draw the attention when it's someone on the other side of the aisle okay so um maybe maybe shapiro you know wins with double digits or maybe this is so catastrophically depressing for democrats that a whole bunch of them don't show up to vote. Shapiro will still win. It is likely. There's a lot of people who might vote for a lot of like suburban republic around, you know, in the Philadelphia suburbs and people like that um, will end up voting for, uh, would end up voting for Shapiro instead of Mastriano, whereas they would have, you know, they would have voted for a conventional Republican but uh, if if those people are 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 Shapiro's only winning by double digits because Republicans are going to vote for him. If that's the case, then I don't think they have any they have any problem voting for Oz. I mean, he did say last night, "I do not want a federal law on abortion. I don't. I'm not going to vote for Lindsey Graham's thing. I think the state should decide, and Pennsylvania's a state, and it should decide." So he said this one thing that even despite the fact that he said that local officials should be in the in the room with the with the mother and the and the doctor, um, which can be spun however people want to spin it. They were already going to ticket split. I mean, they were already they were already going there. The, the, the Shapiro double digit win already depends upon Republicans voting for him in large numbers. And I just don't see how, if you're a Republican voting for him in large numbers, you have all that much desire to vote for Fetterman uh, after last night. Or have a reason not to ticket split. Like, if there's a reason to ticket split, this is a reason to ticket split. It's not that everyone's become a Democrat and therefore Democrats are going to vote for Oz and that's going to push him over. Um. It would be Republicans and independents voting for Oz, who and a bunch of them will also vote for Shapiro. That that's the scenario. I I don't know. Um, but I, I don't know. The more people tell them that they're not allowed to do, there are two ways of looking at it. either 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 this will be enforced by social by this kind of social ostracism pressure to say that it's it you can't judge. Uh, and that'll work or people are going to go don't don't tell me I again don't tell me that I don't see what I'm seeing you can't tell me that I'm not seeing what I'm seeing and of course then if you want to get into substantive issues 
he said he's for fracking and he signed petitions and all this that he that showed he was against fracking so either he that that's an interesting double edged sword because on policy terms either he doesn't know that he's against frack that he's against fracking which is horrifying that he doesn't remember that or he lied in the most discomforting way that a politician could lie which is he said i'm 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 for it and then they say no look here's a quote from 3 years ago that you said where you said you were against it and he's like i'm for it 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 i never so, said that so in other words he can't even be the binary robot right he, he's, i mean yeah he doesn't want I mean, he can only be the, the binary robot on the grounds that he's not really the senator and somebody else is the senator. Right. And he's yeah, just that's the, the implicit bargain here. Yeah. Is that someone will tell me who to vote for. Right. To vote rather. Right. Um, let's move on to the to the other debate of of the night, um, which in 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 the race that will probably show you whether there's a wave more than any other. And that is the uh, New York gubernatorial race between Lee Zeldin and Kathy Hochul. Um, it was on literally in the hour before um, before the uh, Oz Fetterman debate. And uh, as we keep telling you, uh, uh, Zeldin is overperforming. I mean, unquestionably overperforming uh, in a state that uh, Andrew Cuomo won by 23 uh, in the last gubernatorial election, Kathy Hochul, who was appointed to succeed, who was who was the lieutenant governor and got the got the job when Cuomo resigned, former congressman from the Buffalo area. Um, this was her first real public exposure outside of Buffalo that any you know on a on a on a stage in a real serious you know contended era, way. Um, and uh, I think where we are now is this question of whether or not simply being the generic Democrat will be enough to put you over the top because Hochul was terrible. I mean, I'm not saying it's the worst debate performance I've ever seen because it remains that James Stockdale was the worst debate performance I've ever seen. Um, or Rick Perry was the worst debate performance I've ever seen. But that was, of course, with 11 different people. Um there were so many hilarious moments. If you sort of pay attention to New York, what that went on, our, our, I think Noah's and my favorite <laughs> was where, you know, where Zeldin said, look, this state is in terrible shape. Crime is terrible. Uh, you know, this is terrible. That's terrible. The roads are, are bad. Everybody hates, you know, and Hochul did something that no politician should ever, ever, ever do which is that she praised a crowded highway. Not just any highway. Yeah. The Long Island the Expressway. Worst. Yeah. Yeah. It's the worst. The quote People is, love yes. the LIE now, she now. said. <laughs> All of a sudden. Yeah. Everybody they love it because she's, because, because she's done such a great job improving the LIE. The Long Island now, Expressway is a road that runs up and down the island. It's, it's the main highway. It is a nightmare, only not necessarily just because, you know, there's potholes. There are. Um, but it's just it's the mo one of the more trafficy roads that and the BQE are just in impossible to navigate at drive time. No one loves the LIE now right. or ever before. Also, I you know, I just 
want to point out that the Long Island Expressway is a federal highway. It's 495. That is that is a federal highway. So I don't not entirely clear why the governor of the state. It's one thing. There are parkways. There's there's the there's the southern state and the northern state parkway also go east west on Long Island, which are by the way very nice and they're very pretty. They're very pretty and trucks can't go on them. And um, and people do kind of like like you prefer to drive on one because it's a it's a it's a then the service roads maybe that run alongside it but literally no one loves the thing it's a necessary evil right here's how you know that you're in the wave environment because Kathy Hochul had three arguments this is what she made routinely over the course of this um, of this debate with some you know some digressions into territory she didn't want to go into one tax cuts she's cutting your taxes two very focused on crime very focused on immigration, using all her powers to address these dual concerns. Um, these are Republicans. This is a Republican issue set that she's trying to co-opt. And if that's the primary issue set that's driving this election, it automatically favors Republicans. She gave that game away. Um, Zeldin had a couple of couple of bad moments. And, and oh, I'm sorry, the third thing is Trump. Uh, she mentioned Trump throughout this debate. She tried to get Zeldin locked down on Trump, which Zeldin didn't didn't avoid, um, had a couple of stumbles, but smartly navigated for the most part. Um, but she tried to make it about the 2020 election, tried to make it about Zeldin's vote against certifying the, uh, the, the uh, uh, election results in Arizona and Pennsylvania, tried to make it about January 6th. Um, and that's a good strategy if you're trying to rev up an unenthusiastic base. But it admits your base is very unenthusiastic. Um. But she did. She had terrible moments. Like it's not just the LA. Can, moment. I, can she, I do my favorite one? Ahead. Yeah, is when they were talking about crime, and she and and then she said to Zeldin, like, I don't know why locking up criminals is so important to you. Like she's telling yeah. this to an audience in New York that is this. Scene, I mean, she, crime rise. she she said, literally, she said he kept saying, "Cashless bail, cashless bail, cashless bail," and criminals are back on the streets. And she said. Every criminal in this state who is, there are consequences. I don't know why this upsets you so much. Uh, wow. Now, the victims of crime, the victims, I mean, the people the man was almost victimized. stabbed. Bullets yeah. are flying yes. where his children, where my children sleep. Yeah. And he didn't, by the way, interestingly enough, Zeldin did something very restrained. It was a very impassioned, maybe overly heated performance. It's hard to, you know, again, you'd have to have watched it from beginning to end to say he came on too hot. Uh, but he was trying to make the case, and maybe this is what he's like, I don't really know, but you know, that that that, that the state is in urgently bad condition and he has the urgency. He is starting on day one, he is going to remove Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA from office, which he is given the power to do as a result of malfeasance by the state constitution. That is in the state constitution. Uh, Hochul amazingly said, um, Really? I mean, it's like uh, all you want to do is uh, make sure that people who are elected don't uh, don't win like that. This is like the same as as Trump as like supporting Trump's 2020. No, it's not. Uh, There was a crime emergency in New York City and we have a a Manhattan D.A. who um, who is literally, you know, spent six months refusing to prosecute any misdemeanors uh, and. so that's a serious issue. She has the power. He has the power. He's not exercising the power. She's not exercising the power. He says he is, and she tries to make that 
illegitimate when it is a power that he holds in the state constitution. John, you, you picked up on something that is revealing of what perhaps the Zeldin campaign is seeing, which is the extent to which he focused on uh, New York's Jews. Just about every issue that he could bring it back to uh, hate crimes against Jews, the Iran deal, which is kind of defunct. That's that's the biggest threat to America, uh, according to him. All these issues that are resonant among American the American Jewish community suggests a little softness there. Right. Now, Zeldin himself is Jewish. Um, now often you will find Jewish candidates like that do not lean hard into it for for fear of implicitly saying that they're favoring their own over everybody else. Um, but um, yeah, he must know uh, that, that. Remember, where this race is going, if you really want to understand, is that is that Hochul wins in New York City. Hochul wins by running up the margins in New York City, six, seven, eight to one, let's say. And Zeldin right now, who was a con con was the congressman from Suffolk County, um, if he can run up numbers in Nassau and Suffolk County, the two counties on Long Island, um, he can significantly, he can counteract her strength in the city. When was the last time New York's had a, a Democrat representing upstate? And a Republican downstate. Uh, I think this is, you mean, as opposed to the other, the way, other way around. around. I don't know. It's there. It's a. It's a. It's a more complicated. There have been circumstances, and it depends on where you where you draw downstate. Um, speaking of South which, you know, as Sean Patrick Maloney, who represents uh, counties just north of Westchester, which is the county that that borders uh, New York City to the north. Sean Patrick Maloney, uh, who is the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, is locked in the race of his life. Uh, has a real there's a real shot that he will get knocked off. Uh, and again, what we have here is the issue of whether or not being the generic Democrat, Hochul is running as the generic Democrat. She doesn't really have that much to offer. She's saying, in the 14 months that I've been governor, I've filled potholes on the Long Island Expressway, and I may I I. Uh, authorized or I made a deal uh, to pay off the Buffalo Bills to give them a new stadium, uh, which uh, she was, it was a very discomforting moment in the debate when she actually had to explain why that was a good thing because the bills aren't going anywhere. The owners of the bill, the multi-billionaire. And uh, she then said, no, no, it's fine because I got the Seneca Indians to pay for it basically, uh, which was a pretty striking moment. Um, the reason that she did it is that she's a goneff like all New York state politicians and was paying off her and was paying off her uh, political base in Buffalo. Um, and Buffalo seems to be the place in New York state where Democratic money goes to disappear mysteriously into crevices because uh, Andrew Cuomo himself was almost indicted for a project that came to be known as the Buffalo billion, which was spending on, uh, on, on education and turning Buffalo into some sort of education and high tech hub. Um, and all that money vanished. Uh, and, uh, all, all of it was done in no bid ways and all this, and it was a billion dollars. And so Buffalo is, is Buffalo is a grave is a, is a potential political graveyard for democratic politicians. But, um, so she really doesn't have much to offer, except that she is the generic Democrat. And he said, okay, you want to be the generic Democrat? Crime is up everywhere. Everybody's scared, senseless about what's going on with crime in this in this state and um, uh, say something about it. And she 
said, I don't know why you're upset about it. And she said, I am doing something about it, but I don't know why you're upset about there were, it. There were also some interesting COVID questions in there where she, when she was asked about mandating, you know, vaccination for children, she's like, not at this time. And Zeldin came back with, I will never do that. I will never make this a mandate. And about some of the previous, you know, uh, firing of workers who didn't, who didn't get vaccinated, which I, which I was surprised to hear. I mean, those were that was interesting to me. And I think that there that's was another actually... debate last night that we didn't watch in uh, Michigan Catch editorial where she also said this mandates uh, COVID generally is politically toxic, but mandates are radioactive. But um, on COVID, her biggest flub was when she said, you don't remember what it was like when people were dying in nursing homes. And, and I, I saw <laughs> Zeldin. I saw a light bulb, yeah. you know, yeah. go off and he he pounced. Uh, literally, yeah, Republican pounced. This Republican yeah. pounced, <clears throat> and he said, it "People was, were dying. It was in, a f- in, where were you when people were dying in 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 nursing homes? And where were you during the cover up of, of the death count?" Yeah, it was a stunning moment, and it shows what an incompetent boob of a politician Hochul is. Like she walked into that. She nobody that even man. asked. She her set him question. up. <laughs> nobody even asked her the question. She said. You have to understand the atmosphere we were in. People were dying in nursing homes sent there by by my by my boss. They were sent there by my boss, forced to stay there. And then we and then and then my boss covered it up and I sat there silently and then ended up being the beneficiary of his evil. Um, it was sort of like, you know, uh, Balaam's ass or something, you know, Balaam in 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 the Bible, you know, Balaam's ass. Uh, God infuses Balaam's ass, uh, you know, or ba- God makes Balaam, you know, say praise the Lord instead of condemning, instead of condemning the Lord. And it was almost like something, something was in, in placed in her body that made her mention. But I actually the think that. Homes. But see, that for me, I read that moment as being a perfect encapsulation of of just how a kind of democratic. COVID mandate, technocratic sort of official thinks. I think she really was thinking, well, we were just doing the best. We, you know, she felt victimized. It's kind of like everything was terrible. We did the best thing we could. You know, people were dying in nursing homes and she didn't actually make the connection. I don't think she made the connection between this is that look will make me look bad because I was in the administration that was sending these people off to their desk. I think she thought she still thinks the technocrats did exactly what they could with the information they had, and we should be thanked for it. We should be we should be appreciated yeah. for it. She also had this um, really ineffective rhetorical tick, where after uh, Zeldin would give an answer, uh, she'd say, "Yeah, I don't quite know what you meant. What you meant there? I didn't but, hear an answer there. Yeah, right, right, every yeah. time. Which which is really her announcing, I have no response to what you said. Right, and he kept saying, every time we talk about crime." And what you're going to do about crime, you don't answer. So clearly you don't want to talk about crime. Or maybe so, she has perception issues. She too I think struggles in the end, with the spoken look, I think Zeldin did, if the debate matters, Zeldin did what he needed to do. He showed urgency. He was fluid. He understood all the issues. He dealt with his greatest weakness, which is his vote on, on, on uh, his votes not to certify Arizona and Pennsylvania. He dealt with it pretty well, uh, given that it was a it was a horrible uh, it was a horrible thing that he did. And and uh, and if he ends up losing the election, uh, 
it, there will be justice to it because he should never have done that. And um, although you could also say that he might not have gotten the nomination had he not done it. So it's an interesting uh, double bind. Nonetheless, he dealt with it as well as he could. And he really, really, really hit it out of the park on, 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 on safety crime. Um, and, and the, and the fact that New York is a, is a bad place to do business and where taxes are too high and uh, and regulations are too great and he so if he really has a shot this debate will have done him will have done him well and if he uh and if he doesn't have a shot then really she she succeeded or, or whatever she it is the it is a generic democrat versus generic republican race and in the end there are just more democrats than republicans in new york state and then and then she will prevail. But based on what I, we saw last night, I wouldn't be surprised if it went either way. I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Zeldin won now based on that performance. I wouldn't bet on it. But, I mean, it wouldn't be like, holy crap, look, you know, it's coming out of nowhere. Like, he's been rising and gaining, and he, they had this face-to-face -face confrontation, and he won it going away. Um. Uh, and so, and she was terrible. So, and nobody knows who she is anyway. No one has ever voted for her. I mean, except outside of Buffalo, like no one ever really voted for her. She, no, she would. No one votes for the lieutenant governor. Um. So uh, there we are, and uh, we will uh, be back tomorrow to talk about less painful stuff. For Abe, Noah, and Christina, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.